0: Sometimes love means letting go when you want to hold on tighter. Melissa Marr. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller and coming up on this month's episode, a young child goes missing after the first day of school. But as rumors fly and investigators chase fevered leads, a word of caution to you, the listener, your assumptions in this story cannot be trusted. Like easing yourself into a cold water lake, the reality that parents can't completely protect their children from the dangers of the world around them is a reality that's best realized slowly and gradually. To jump into such an understanding with both feet all at once would be too much, too fast. You can adequately prepare yourself for a good many things in this life, but becoming a parent is not one of them. Parenting itself is a little something like growing up. There are a thousand mistakes you make, hopefully most of them only once. And with practice and patience, and most importantly, that inherent and most indescribable biological connection that parents feel with their children, you gradually become better at raising future adults. In that way, and perhaps only that way, parenting is like anything else. When you become a parent, nobody tells you about the letting go. Of course, you hear about the clichés. When you love something, set it free. When you love someone, let them go. And you know that your kids will someday leave on their own. That's in fact the goal. And that when they do, hopefully they're as prepared as you could have possibly made them. When you become a parent, you know they'll leave. You know you'll have to say goodbye. But nobody tells you you'll have to do it a thousand times. There are innumerable little goodbyes that arrive first, a thousand little moments when they don't need you anymore, at least not in that moment. The first day of school is one such moment, but a bigger little moment for many parents. I myself will have forgotten most of those thousand goodbyes in time, but maybe the last one to go will be the day I drop my oldest child off at his first day of kindergarten. For me, it hasn't been that long ago now, and I remember also watching the other parents who were doing the same that day. Now, if you don't have kids, you might find all this sort of silly and maybe dramatic, and there's nothing I can do to contextualize that for you. Even being among those parents, you can see in the others some mild sort of hopelessness. Whatever that day has in store for those parents, whatever's on their work schedule or their to-do list... It doesn't exist in that moment, as someone else walks their child away from them to experience something they themselves did a long, long time ago now. It's almost like standing in a vortex, a time machine. It's like watching a better version of yourself walk away from you. It's also something that we all have in common. The very first day of school is a rite of passage. The very first step in our one day impacting the world, as we all do, Tuesday, September 3, 1963, would be such a momentous day for six-year-old Carmela Aragon. Carmela’s first day of kindergarten was finished at about 11 o'clock that morning. She was last seen by, of all people, a former state senator at 12:15 pm, walking alone in the direction of her house. That witness noted Carmela's thick glasses that she always wore, and her walking with a pronounced limp, which she always had. But otherwise, noted nothing out of the ordinary. Others saw Carmela too, several other people in fact, including truck drivers and outdoor workers, similarly glimpsing Carmela at about the same time that day. One of those drivers, fearing that the girl might dart in front of his truck, gave her a warning honk of his horn as he drove by. Even that horn blast would later be corroborated by a local man working on his car in his garage tiny seemingly insignificant details like that are how police established a window and a location for Carmela's vanishing because she would have had to have disappeared sometime after that driver honked his horn and in putting together this investigation police would later learn that Carmela had left school on foot with a woman who wasn't her mother but was the mother of another child in Carmela's class she said that once she and her own child reached their home Carmela continued the additional half-mile to her own, where her mother was waiting, at which point she was alone. Carmela's mother was anxiously awaiting the arrival of her daughter at home, and when Carmela didn't return within a reasonable amount of time, well, what would you do? Carmela's mother began to panic. She frantically gathered a small posse of neighbors to search, and while several cars were driving all over the neighborhood looking for the missing girl, they were still each convinced that she would be found at any moment. When she was not, a 60-man search for Carmela Aragon commenced using personnel from the highway patrol, Cheyenne City police with dogs, and a specialized sheriff's posse. Aircraft were brought in from Fort Warren, and the search fanned out along the banks of Crow Creek on the southeast outskirts of the city. When the sun set on Cheyenne that Tuesday evening, The search of the burnt plains and grasslands continued unabated, aided by a massive full moon that night. After news of the missing girl spread, dozens of reports were phoned in to police in those initial hours. All of them were just as quickly eliminated. Among those tips was a sighting of a girl matching Carmilla's description in Kimball, Nebraska, 65 miles away. Two Cheyenne deputies were dispatched, turning up nothing. By the next day, the manpower involved in that search increased tenfold. More than 500 people were combing the outskirts of southern Cheyenne, Wyoming. With only one trace of the missing girl having been found, and that single found clue would seem to have been an important one. Some school papers belonging to Carmella were located by the highway patrol east of a refinery about a half mile from her home. Among those papers was a coloring sheet of a duck, Carmella's first homework assignment. Meanwhile, the search of Crow Creek south of the city had migrated to one of the reservoirs servicing the historic WHR Ranch. The 150 acre body of water was at least partially drained overnight, over hours, also revealing nothing further. As there was a possibility that Carmella may have been abducted and taken across the nearby Colorado state line, the FBI were brought in. Police initially believed that Carmela was picked up while walking home on that first day of school, possibly, if not probably, by someone she knew and trusted. This theory yielded to police one or two good suspects, who would not be identified publicly, but who were questioned by authorities immediately. Those persons of interest, in the words of police, just didn't pan out. But that theory of Carmela being offered a ride by someone she knew, though plausible, was also baseless. There was no evidence to support the six-year-old girl willingly getting into anyone's vehicle. There was, in fact, no evidence in her disappearance at all, beyond those found papers. Desperation by authorities to save the girl in the live-person search phase mounted rapidly, and police began a house-to-house canvass of residences in the area. All of those inquiries brought the same answer. Nobody knew what happened to little Carmela Aragon, and there was no trace of her. But of course, that couldn't be true. Someone had to know. In that chasm between the truth and what is known, the void must always be filled. In absence of our firm conviction of what actually happened, any knowledge of probably what happened, will suffice. We humans abhor that vacuum. It cannot exist. And so the rumors began to fly. The rumors, in this case, were sparked, really. The lit match was a phone call made anonymously from Casper to a family friend of the Aragons in Cheyenne. The caller seemed to imply that Carmela was there, in Casper, initiating a flurry of activity in both communities' Hispanic populations, as the family friend was from Mexico. But the caller reportedly did not overtly state that Carmela Aragon was actually in Casper. And whatever was said on that phone call has since been lost to history. And it's unclear how seriously investigators in Casper or Cheyenne took that lead. The rumor, though, was enough to reignite the community's interest in the case, and authorities pressed on with ground searches of two additional sprawling ranches south of Cheyenne. Nothing was found. Slim and ambiguous as that phone call lead had been, another manifested in the form of a vehicle sighting. Four weeks after Carmela's disappearance, authorities announced their interest in a green station wagon with out-of-state license plates. That sighting had come into authorities right away, but they'd kept it from the public for the intervening weeks. It finally was made public out of desperation and really a lack of any other solid leads. Teachers at Carmela's school had noted something odd as class was dismissed on that first day. A woman of Hispanic descent parked in that out-of-state green station wagon near the school. That by itself was not odd, but that she was appearing to lay down in the front seat, almost as though she was hiding from the other adults. That was odd to the teachers. The teachers noted that the same woman had been sitting upright just moments before. The license plates on the vehicle were believed to have been from New Mexico, but even that was unclear, and eventually that lead also fizzled out. After a few weeks, the ground search came to an end, although aircraft were still dispatched to take photos of the vast Wyoming landscape. The images were then poured over in offices by men with magnifying glasses, in some diminishing hope that something could be seen in the pictures that hadn't been found on the ground. I'm not sure there's anything more the Laramie County Sheriff's Department or any of the other agencies involved could have done to locate Carmela Aragon, alive or otherwise. By 1963 standards especially, their investigation was persistent and thorough. Even so, none of those efforts were enough. Carmela was not located alive, and police never found her body. It was two hunters who did. The remains of Carmela Aragon were found on Sunday, October 27, 1963, nearly two months after she left her first kindergarten class. The state of the remains were such that the identification could only be made through clothing on the body and the possessions found nearby. Those two antelope hunters had spent that Sunday on the same sprawling ranch that had been searched over and over and over again dozens of times in the previous months. Inside a portion of that land that had been specially open for hunting, a wounded antelope had led the 16-year-old and 12-year-old boys to a place and a person that hundreds of professional and amateur searchers hadn't been able to find. And there is some inexplicable reason for that. Because that place, Carmela's final resting place, seems wrong because Carmela Aragon's body was found three miles into the Wyoming wilderness. To walk to that location, ultimately from school, meant that the six-year-old walked four miles after class that day. Her assigned coloring sheet, that outline of a friendly duck, was found by the state patrol two miles from this spot. This girl's body was found a mile and a half from the nearest road. Adding to the mystery, the local coroner could find no signs of foul play from her remains. Eventually, Carmela's official cause of death was ruled to have been exposure to the elements. Sometimes closure isn't closure at all. Sometimes closure opens many more doors. Carmela Aragon, as you recall, walked with a limp, apparently the product of a lifelong disability. This distinct gait is what made her stick out to those numerous witnesses who saw her walking home by herself that day. It also makes traveling some four miles on foot that day perhaps all the more unlikely. A dozen other questions come to mind, too. By the time a six-year-old is six years old, she knows her way around her own neighborhood by then. But if, somehow, Carmela had become lost, why would she have left the road? In this missing person in the wyoming wilderness she was not trying to find civilization for help she had just come from there even if carmella had become disoriented to the extent where she didn't know which way home was it's difficult to imagine that carmella would not have known which direction cheyenne was her miles long trek into the wyoming prairie away from where she'd just come would also have been arduous for anyone but especially a six-year-old, and especially a disabled six-year-old. That terrain, south of Cheyenne, although forever flat, is not without obstacles. And Carmela was eventually found on a massive ranch. Ranches in Wyoming have fences, sometimes barbed wire fences. And what other terrain along those miles must this six-year-old have navigated to arrive where she was found? But still, we're left with few other options because it might be just as unlikely for anyone to have put Carmela in such a remote location, keeping in mind that officials could find no evidence of any harm done to her. There's no crime evident. Temperatures in Cheyenne, Wyoming, beginning on September 3, 1963 and for the following week, never fell below 50 degrees. Daytime temperatures sometimes soared over 80 It's worth noting that Carmela Aragon was wearing a jacket when she disappeared, and that jacket was with her when she was found. Carmela did not die of hypothermia. But it's also worth noting, as you likely know, that the winds in southern Wyoming are near constant and can be brutal. A six-year-old girl who disappears deserves answers, no matter how much time has elapsed since. Unfortunately, I can't give them to you. Because both of those possibilities, that Carmela was lost and wandered that far, or that someone hurt Carmela Aragon and then drove her a mile and a half off-road to dump her body, without evidence of a crime, both of those possibilities seem, frankly, equally unlikely. So we're left to wonder a generation plus later now, what Carmela may have become? What might her impact on the world have been? had she not been robbed on her journey, after only the very first step onto that path. And what happened to her? What else might have happened to Carmela? I'll open that door for you. It's up to you to walk through or not. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Sources for this one include the Casper Star Tribune and the Associated Press. I want to thank our Patreon supporters of this show for continuing to make this show possible. And for Patreon supporters, in the month of January, you'll be receiving three full episodes from me. And two of those episodes will be exclusive to you. I always love hearing feedback on the show. You can email me, wyomingpodcast, at gmail.com. Follow the show on Twitter, at wyomingpodcast. That is all the time we have for this episode. And so for everyone at county10.com, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.